This is Undisciplined. I'm Matthew LaPlante. It's no secret that the breach of the United States Capitol last week, which interrupted the ceremonial counting of electoral college votes, represented a colossal security failure at the Capitol itself. But what did this say about the state of national and domestic security in our own nation? Why didn't more people see this coming? Or did they? And were they simply ignored? Jeannie Johnson is the director of Utah State University's Center for Anticipatory Intelligence, an interdisciplinary research hub that fuses expertise in national security and geopolitics with cyber threats, data analysis, and emergent technology. She's a former analyst with the Central Intelligence Agency's Directorate of Intelligence and the cultural topography analytic metric she helped pioneer has been used by the CIA to better understand the nature of threats and opportunities around the world. Jeannie Johnson, welcome. Thanks, Matthew. It's great to be here. I wanted to start today with this idea of cultural topography. This thing that you really helped pioneer, you helped introduce this idea to the world of intelligence assessment. What is cultural topography? Cultural topography is a systematic way to approach the idea that cultural influences matter in decision-making and in their outcomes. So as we process our foreign and security policy and as other groups do the same, cultural variables impact the way we think about those things. And as an intelligence community, we didn't have a systematic way to begin to approach that question and think it through carefully and think it through from the point of view of either adversaries or allies, whomever it was that we were investigating. And cultural topography, it changes over time. Mm, Yeah, for sure. So one of the most important features of the cultural topography method is that it is built to track a specific issue. So in short, you are trying to figure out for this particular group in this moment in time on this issue, what are the cultural influences or variables that are weighing in most heavily in their decision-making and resultant behavior. Okay, so I'm feeling all sorts of relevance right now because let's say that somebody was looking at the United States right now, or let's say somebody was looking at the United States a few weeks ago or a few months ago or, or even just a few years ago. What was the cultural topography big red warning lights that were going off? Right. So one of the things you would do first is you wouldn't treat the United States population like a monolith. You would begin to break it out into its component parts and specifically into relevant culture groups that were going to have an impact on the issue you were tracking. So if the issue was domestic stability in the United States, something we didn't think we even needed to track until fairly recently, Uh, If that was your issue, then you would break it out and say, all right, amongst, you know, Democrats, how am I going to disaggregate Democrats into some subset groups that I would need to track? And on the Republican side and across independents, what are the key subset groups 
that may have a profound impact on domestic stability in the United States. And certainly one of them that you would hone in on are the ardent Trump supporters, especially those who have become intertwined with QAnon conspiracy theories or with a lot of the fabrications that the president himself was peddling and were becoming, you know, exceptionally energized by those. And this has been building up for long enough mm-hmm. that any foreign power that was tracking this would have seen something. That's exactly right. So if we were to treat ourselves, you know, the domestic population of the U.S., the same way that we would examine a target country of concern, we would track what in the intelligence community you call signposts, right? You're looking for specific indicators that would tell you an eruption of some sort was in the offing. And you would look at things like protests, relationships between civil authorities like the police and the population. You would be tracking social media. You would look at the response of political leaders, whether they're egging it on or tamping it down. And if we used all of those same mechanisms to examine the U.S., an intelligence assessment would be, this is a population, some segments of which are close to a boiling point. And the responsible way to deal with that is not to say that you know specifically the day and time that the boil is going to boil over and you're going to have violence, but rather you would just say you are at a peak moment that a catalyst event, a small spark of some sort, is going to highly likely cause an eruption. This is sort of what underpins, this is a a key part of the structure that underpins this idea of anticipatory intelligence. Talk about what that is and, and how it can be used. So cultural analysis can be used for a range of questions. This cultural topography method that we were just talking about can be used for very standard security questions, or it can be used for something completely outside of national security. Maybe you're looking at why some parents have a strong reaction, negative reaction to common core curriculum in schools and other parents don't. That may have cultural overtones that would help you understand that question better. So cultural analysis, if we sort of set that aside for the moment, is one tool that we would use within an anticipatory intelligence toolkit. Anticipatory intelligence is a specific slice of the intelligence world that focuses a lot of attention on new emergent trends. And the 21st century has brought us quite a few of those. As you were mentioning in your introduction, whether we're looking at cyber, data science, bioengineering, or the shifting climate, you know, natural disasters or new natural phenomena that we haven't experienced before, our center examines not just each of these individually, but more importantly, how they converge in a complex environment to produce both unprecedented threats and also potentially some unprecedented opportunities. There 
have been signs of this. There have been instances of this all across the globe. Should we have had a better sense? Should more of us have had a better sense of what was brooding in the United States? I'm not sure that people were entirely unaware of what was brewing in the United States. It is hard for me to imagine how violence at some level was not going to be an outcome of the really dangerous cocktail that has been brewing for some time now in our political discourse. And so truth be told, I'm surprised it took this long to manifest. You've said this may be, perhaps should be, a Republican wake-up call. Yeah. Yes, I have said that. At some point, uh, you can't keep feeding the beast and expect it not to break out of its cage and bite you. So for a long time, the many within the Republican establishment have been willfully abetting some of the falsehoods propagated from the top, haven't been strident in decrying when democratic principles have been transgressed, haven't been vigilant about acting on threats to others that were produced by this rhetoric, as we saw with uh, the governor in Michigan and others. And it just strikes me, again, if we were assessing this in another country, we would say they are playing with fire and that never works out very well. At some point, this is going to bust loose. They will not have control over it. They will not be able to put it back in the bottle. And it's going to harm a lot of people. That's the way we would assess it if we were looking at a foreign country. And I'm not sure why we choose to be willfully naive about our own. And we should probably note here, you're not a partisan. That's exactly right. And I know that as I'm saying these things out loud, it will be very tempting for your listeners to assume that about me. I understand that. I have been an independent for a long period of time. In my youth, I was raised in a Republican family. I have worked for our government, both CIA and also with the State Department. I was on Secretary Mattis's Close Combat Lethality Task Force. I have a close working relationship with our military. So after you spend a lot of time in the federal trenches, especially as an intelligence analyst, where you are by your nature serving both sides of the aisle actively, no matter which president is in power, you become really apolitical and just sort of pragmatic. You know, our motto inside CIA is speak truth to power. And the subtext there is speak truth to power, even when it's really uncomfortable or, or people may yell at you or call you names. And so in this particular instance, I'm just dispassionately pointing out that if we were evaluating the United States as another country from afar, these are the sorts of things that we would pinpoint, hone in on, worry about. And of course, CIA is prohibited from conducting any kind of analysis on Americans or on American political parties. I am no longer an employee of CIA. And so as an academic, I am exercising that same analytical skill set. And those are the conclusions that I came to. You mentioned the words speaking truth to power. The intelligence community has 
been seeking to do that with this administration and has been largely sidelined, often mocked, uh, quite frequently ignored. That's got to be one of those warning signs, particularly when it comes to the thing that I want to talk to you about next, which is this idea of the U.S. sort of like giving up a lot of global leadership in the wake of these really, really harsh divisions that are happening within our country. Well, although this pains me to say, ignoring the intelligence community is not anything particularly unique um, (laughs) to any one president. So, you know, Nixon despised the intelligence community. JFK after the Bay of Pigs no longer trusted the intelligence community. And different presidents across time have had varying degrees of confidence in or a steady relationship with their intelligence briefers who arrive every morning to offer the intelligence from overnight. So truth be told, that as an isolated variable would not register as the ultimate cause for concern. Presidents have a lot of different resources that they can draw on for information, and it is absolutely their right to do so. You know, the CIA serves at the beck and call of the president. But if CIA is not producing content that the president finds valuable, then, you know, they just keep working at different angles to try to do so. But that in and of itself doesn't necessarily register a demerit right out of the chute. <laughs> if you are a global leader and you see this waxing and waning, you're watching this waxing and waning mm-hmm. of executives either trusting Intel or ignoring Intel, and we're at a waning point, if we're at one of those points in history where the chief executive has lost trust in his or her intelligence community, that's a point to be exploited, is it not? It could be exploited. The rest of the world actually, though, is looking far more closely at a few other variables. So one is simply the health of our own democracy. Mm-hmm. That health of our democracy is our loudest and most powerful ambassador abroad. I'm sure you've been tracking the statements being made by foreign leaders around the world, but our adversaries are eating up this moment. They are gloating in this moment. They are pointing, you know, whether it's Putin or Xi or Rouhani, they are pointing to the chaos in the United States as proof that democracy does not deliver security for its citizens. It does not deliver a peaceful and prosperous life. And we are adding fuel to their most dangerous internal narratives. Now, most of these places, especially Russia and Iran, their primary concern is discontent in their own domestic population. And so if they can strengthen the narrative that you are better off with an authoritarian regime than a democratic one, then we've just passed them an enormous win. There is a vacuum. There has been a vacuum of global leadership for a while. It it certainly seems to have broken wide open recently. What can we expect to happen as a result of that? In addition to this, I mean, just the the rhetorical use of domestic strife in the United States 
to create messaging. What comes atop that messaging? I appreciate that you raised that issue because if I were to assign a point to, you know, if number one is the way we model democracy, that that's our most important strength on the world stage. The second most important strength on the world stage is the quality of our alliance relationships. And I had maybe one of the most distressing phone calls of my career yesterday because I was talking to a colleague in the Canadian government and he said, you know, we've just recognized that the U.S. is too unsteady a partner. And, you know, he's not trying to say that to be dramatic. He's saying if Canada is looking at the U.S. and saying we had better think about wider options beyond the U.S. because they are so unsteady internally and so unpredictable and have now for years disregarded the health of their alliance relationships. Canada is saying that we're in a lot of trouble. How much of that damage is undoable? How hard will it be to rebuild those relationships? A number of world leaders have passed forward quietly through diplomatic channels that, from their perspective, it would require two successive U.S. presidencies that were solidly committed to alliance relationships once again and were public about it and actively engaged in that direction. And the results of this particular past election are not going to be particularly reassuring, not just because of the violence we have so recently seen, but because of how close the election was and how loud the voices remain inside the United States that tilt toward isolationism and America first policies. That's very worrying to our allies around the world. And insult on top of worry is the notion from the segment of the population that those alliance relationships are a one-way deal, that somehow the U.S. is pouring in all the resources and receiving the benefits. And that's really insulting to our allies who, as you know, rallied after 9-11 and, you know, our NATO allies. It was the first time that Article 5 was invoked and they banded together to fight on behalf of a member country. They fought on our behalf in Afghanistan. And so it's very disheartening for them. In the meantime, while they are waiting for the United States to, in some ways, get its act together, who are the Pied Pipers, the other really not ideal choices for world leadership, but who are standing very ready to try to fill that leadership vacuum. China certainly is in that position. And and the way that China has put its own strategic plan together is fairly genius. So they have made themselves available and easy to work with in a number of critical areas, including artificial intelligence and key economic sectors. They are investing all around the world in those kinds of technologies and attempting to set trends and standards in emergent tech. 
And with that comes its own kind of leadership. So as China moves out with this technology, one of the exports that it is peddling is a way to do a better job of keeping your population on a tighter leash. And that collection of technologies is often termed data valence or, you know, sort of a digital dictatorship package. And it enables governments to micromanage the small behavior. So we're talking about jaywalking or playing your music too loud or eating food on the subway to micromanage the behaviors of its citizens and offer immediate rewards and immediate punishments in order to keep them in line. And if it doesn't look like the world's oldest democracy can keep its population from being at each other's throats, that looks more appealing to world leaders. Well, absolutely it does, but perhaps more importantly, it doesn't just look appealing to the leaders. It looks appealing to their populations. So one of the mistakes that Americans tend to make in our basic paradigm as we you know, look across humankind and human history, we tend to think that people are first and foremost liberty loving. And historically, that is just not true. Historically, people lean toward security toward predictability. And whether you are using an historical record like the Bible or like, you know, Greek writings, you see people say, give us a king, give us centralized leadership. And that call for predictability in your life and security and being able to navigate with low transaction costs, the next steps in your life means that people will voluntarily engage in liberty trade-offs where they hand over liberty in the name of greater security. And these data valence systems offer really incremental, very clever, very effective step-by-step increments for doing so. I remember being in Iraq shortly after the U.S. invasion in 2003 and talking to a father who told me, you know, you Americans, you can take your freedom. I just want to send my kid to school and know they're going to come home. And it's funny, Americans think they are in such a different category. But part of that is we just haven't experienced real insecurity for a sustained period of time. I remember, and probably you do too, walking the halls after 9-11. The planes had just crashed into the towers and the university was in an upheaval and students were pouring out of their classrooms. And I can't tell you how many times I heard the comment, well, we just need to get these terrorists. The FBI can tap my phone. They should just tap everyone's phone (laughs) so that we can find these terrorists. That was the immediate reaction. Bring on the state, bring on surveillance so that we can make sure this never happens to us again. So Americans aren't in the really different category that they think they are. We just haven't lived the way other people have lived. What's the road we're on right now? And is there a way to get off? Well, the road we're on right now will depend largely on how we respond to upcoming weeks. I can't imagine that violent outbursts are over. 
So the Republican Party specifically has some decisions to make about whether they acknowledge the election as legitimate, unapologetically legitimate, and side with the courts and the states and all others who have examined this election and declared it to be legitimate. And so part of the way ahead will be determined by the voices and the actions of those key political leaders. Now, beyond that, as Biden steps into the presidency, how he and his fellow Democrats decide to handle reconciliation in the nation will also be critical. And then it comes down to all of us in our own neighborhoods. How do we decide to talk to each other? I don't know how things have been in your neighborhood, but even in mine, there's been more harm done to friendships and even families and the hearts of people who had been lifelong friends through the last four years than had been done in four political administrations combined previously. So how are we on an individual level going to decide to handle that? That's Jeannie Johnson. She's the director of Utah State University's Center for Anticipatory Intelligence, an interdisciplinary research hub aimed at fusing expertise in national security and geopolitics with cyber threats, data analytics, and emergent technology. Jeannie Johnson, thank you. Absolutely. It was a great pleasure. Undisciplined is a production of Utah Public Radio, and if you happen to live in Utah, you can listen to us every Thursday at 10.30 a.m. on UPR. If you miss us then, you can listen to every episode of Undisciplined wherever you get your podcasts. Our producer is Naomi Ward. Our associate producer is Mia Dora. Our theme music is Little Idea by Benjamin Tissot. And I'm Matthew LaPlante. Thanks for listening. Now go have big ideas.